0: Hey listeners, Harry here with another episode of Air Power and International Security. Today we have Colonel Professor John Andreas Olsen joining me for a discussion about the key influential figures in the development of US and therefore by extension NATO Air Power. I've been trying to get Colonel Olsen on the show for a while now, so I'm delighted to finally share this episode with you. Professor Olson, as he's otherwise known, is undoubtedly one of the biggest names in the study of air power. I've lost count of how many books he's written and edited relating to the history and development of air power. But he also continues to be an officer in the Norwegian military, where he is currently assigned to NATO headquarters. Today we'll be talking about his latest book, Air Power Pioneers, to learn more about the individuals that have shaped air power in theory and in practice. Because if we want to understand air power and approaches to air power, we have to learn about the ideas and the concepts that have shaped its employment. And these typically come from exceptional individuals. So here is John talking all about air power pioneers from Billy Mitchell to Dave Diptula. Hi John, thanks for joining me today to talk about air power pioneers in more detail. Now this is one of your recent books that you've published and I think it's the conclusion of a trilogy of of air power books. Um, And we'll get into that perhaps more during the talk. But let me start with the motivating question. Why should we study air power then? Uh,
1: thank you. Thank you, Harry. Um, I would suggest, as point of departure, that the first responsibility of any government is to ensure its nation's sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity. To that end, we have armed forces, professional men and women who are educated, trained, and equipped to protect their citizens. And air power is an essential part of that military political toolbox and more specifically i would submit that air power is now the preferred military option for our national leaders because precision strike offers the prospect of military victory without large-scale destruction and loss of life air power is our nation's first responder for deterrence and defense because of its readiness swiftness and responsiveness air power is Also, our nation's first line of defense, if you lose control of the air, you lose on the ground and at sea, and you lose quickly. Another reason to study air power is that despite its lethality, it's little understood and um, an under-researched field in academia. I might also add that war at home is no longer unthinkable. The Europe Atlantic area is not at peace. So the relevance of air power, capability, capacity and competence is unquestionable. So for all these reasons, we need to study air power's role in national security and in warfare. And we need to study air power's strengths,
0: limitations and potential. I think you more than anybody has has done a terrific job in furthering the cause and the significance of air power, especially in academic study. Now, as I mentioned, Air Power Pioneers is your latest publication in a trilogy for the uh, US Naval Institute Press. Um, you published Air Power Reborn in 2015 and Air Power Applied in 2017. What was the purpose of this three volume set? How would you compare the three? How do they relate to each other? Uh,
1: you're absolutely right. The, the three books should be considered a, a trilogy. Uh, the first, Air Power Reborn, it really centers on the military theories of two U.S. Air Force officers, Colonel John Boyd and Colonel John Warden III. The book offers a conceptual approach to warfare that emphasizes air power's unique capability to achieve strategic effects. And importantly, from my perspective, it looks beyond the land-centric battlefield-oriented paradigm that has continued to dominate military theories and strategies long after air power began offering new options. So that book aims to encourage officers, enlisted personnel and university students to think conceptually and strategically about the application of aerospace power. The second book, Air Power Applied, reviews the evolution of air power and its impact on the history of warfare. It's a critical examination of 29 case studies in which the United States, NATO and Israel applied air power in war. So the book offers perspectives on the political purpose, strategic meaning and military importance of air power. The case studies aim to give professionals insight into the political context in which air operations must be assessed and serve as a guide best practices. Now the third anthology, Air Power Pioneers, which we will talk about today, profiles 12 American airmen who made significant contributions to advancing air power thought and application. The book examines a dozen individuals who dedicated their careers to transforming the United States from wooden biplanes into the world's predominant aerospace nation. For so tracing their stories over time, the authors of the book show us how, why, where, and when these visionaries left their mark. So to sum up, airpower Power Reborn emphasizes theory, Air Power Applied emphasizes history, and airpower Pioneers emphasizes the human factor.
0: Thanks for that sort of overview of those books. I can't recommend them highly enough to our listeners. So let's dive into today's book, Air Power Pioneers, from Billy Mitchell to Dave Deptula. You deal with 12 distinguished USAF officers, as you've just mentioned. What motivated you to publish 12 mini biographies in this way? What is it that you think we can learn about air power from the study of individuals and why these individuals in particular?
1: I think it goes back to my childhood. I I always found it fascinating to read about the life and times of famous people. I think most of us would like to know more about the people who influenced history and made a difference. Because reading about a successful, remarkable person can be an inspirational, educational, and in some rare cases, a life-altering experience. And as we learn about the challenges that others have overcome, we can make connections to our own lives and careers. Another motivation is that well researched biographies of airmen, written by experts who can provide scholarly rigor and historical accuracy or situational context, are essential for the historiography of air power. So I also try to bridge a gap in the air power literature because there are relatively few professional biographies, and those that exist normally relate to World War I or World War II. An understanding of those who contributed to advancing military aviation in the past could inspire the next generation of airmen to apply their own insights into the profession and perhaps exert equal or even greater influence in the future. And importantly, rather than focus on command in a series of air campaigns, this book describes the personal qualities and careers of people who distinguished themselves first and foremost by advancing air power theory, doctrine and strategy, and in certain cases by implementing significant organizational changes in the U.S. Air Force structure. These are unsung heroes compared to those who fought on the front line. Some held important positions during the wartime, but except for a few who excelled in both combat and peace. Those selected in this volume made their main contribution to advancing aerospace power away from the front line as planners and organisers, as educators and as strategists.
0: Excellent. A number of reasons there why we should learn about and learn from air power pioneers. So who were you writing this book for? Was it students of air power, commanders? What sort of audience was this targeted at? My
1: main target group is members of the armed services and especially air forces. Uh, Sadly, airmen all over the world are not deeply acquainted with their own history and the theoretical foundations of their profession. But I also aim for students of military history and strategic studies and international relations, particularly those seeking deeper understanding of the utility of air power as a national instrument of force. So I hope to engage scholars in the field of war studies as well as faculty members and students of both military and civilian colleges and universities. And I hope your students will find this book of interest as well.
0: I'm sure they will, I'm sure they will. So as already mentioned you cover a number of USAF uh, commanders and, and air power thinkers for the sake of the audience, let me list these individuals. It starts with Billy Mitchell, goes on to Henry Hap Arnold, Hayward Hansel, Hoyt Vandenberg, Curtis LeMay, Bernard Schriever, Glenn Kent, David Jones, Bill Creech, John Warden III, Tony McPeak, and finally concludes with Dave Diptula. Now, we can't obviously cover all of these people today. I wonder if you could perhaps give us a brief outline or synopsis of some of these crucial individuals. Shall we start with Billy Mitchell? I think he's quite a useful one to to begin this talk with.
1: Absolutely. The first chapter is on Brigadier General William Billy Mitchell and is written by Dr Richard Hallion. And it is natural to start with the most famous and most controversial figure in the history of American air power. Billy Mitchell was a respected commander, And a man who seized the chance to be America's first combined air component commander before the term existed in 1918. And he was the first prominent American to expose publicly a vision of an independent air force and strategic air power that would dominate future war. He believed that aircraft were inherently offensive, strategic weapons that revolutionized war. By allowing direct attack on an enemy country's vital centers, that is, the key industrial areas that produced armaments and equipment so necessary in modern war. Not unlike the thinking of of, uh, the Royal Air Force's uh, U-tranchard. Mitchell was a daring, uh, flamboyant, and outspoken leader who was court-martialed, found guilty of insubordination, and suspended from active duty for five years without pay. So seen by many as a martyr for his cause, others would argue that his use of the press and his lack of hesitation about playing Congress, the President, the Army, and the Navy against one another was unacceptable. But for Billy Mitchell, sensationalism was gratifying, but also a means of drawing attention to his far-sighted ideas on aviation. So Billy Mitchell was who is essentially a man with with a mission and a true pioneer of modern aviation, but remains one of the least understood figures of modern military history because of his complexity. Through his crusade, he is the starting point for anyone who wants to engage in a discourse on the utility of air power.
0: It sounds quite dangerous to be an air power pioneer during the early days of air power. You know, some of the big names in air power theory, like Julio Douhet, Billy Mitchell, seem to have been court-martialed for one reason or another. It, it does, and it's
1: something with the, the U.S. Air Force, or maybe all air forces, that uh, that those who, who make their mark seem to be um, controversial one way or another. Uh, maybe because it was the young service in opposition to others, it was a different, um, different way of warfare. But they always
0: seem to have a bit of controversy about them. Yes, certainly. Um, should we should we stay on this early period then and move to Hap Arnold next? The case study
1: on on General Henry Holly Hap Arnold is written by Doctor Dick Darso, who knows the man better than any other living individual. And commanding general of the Army Air Forces during World War Two. This visionary five star general established the enduring technological and scientific tradition of today's US Air Force. He was one of the first Army pilots and then a protege of firebrand Billy Mitchell, supporting him during the court uh, marshals. And Arnold embodied this close linkage between air power technology and training and their applications to doctrine. His relationship with scientists engineers and industrial entrepreneurs created the military-industrial-academic support structure that still underlies today's U.S. Air and Space Forces. Arnold's sheepish grin could not camouflage his demanding and sometimes explosive leadership style, which was often a result of wartime pressure from expanding the infant Army Air Corps into the massive Army Air Forces, consisting of 2.4 million airmen and nearly 300,000 planes in less than five years. He was lightheartedly referred to as the most even-tempered man in the air service, always angry. With the top cover from the Army Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, Arnold patiently and deliberately resisted pressure from military aviators And his own desire to establish an independent air force until victory over the Axis powers was assured. At war's end, after suffering multiple heart attacks while remaining on active duty, Arnold saw his vision for an independent U.S. Air Force realized in September 1947, 29 years after the establishment of the Royal Air Force. Arnold was a genius for accomplishing great things and inspiring others to do likewise. A great leader of men, intellectually and physically, and with a great moral compass.
0: So if Arnold was a great leader of men, what about Curtis LeMay? He's someone, I think, who attracts a degree of controversy because of the use of area bombing over Japan, uh, perhaps unfairly, I might add then, in that I think that was always an idea that Yousaf were thinking of before the Second World War, but he was the guy that put it into practice. What can we learn about Curtis LeMay from your new book?
1: Um, He is, of course, one of the icons of American military history. Um, He was simply unique and a larger-than-life figure. Upon America's entry into World War II, he was sent to Europe as a lieutenant colonel to lead and bomb Uh, a bomb group and three years later he had become the nation's youngest major general. He had a remarkably practical and creative mind and devised the tactics employed by the Eighth Air Force in bombing enemy targets in Europe and consequently he was then chosen to head the the B-29 attacks against Japan uh, selected by Hap Arnold because he was a man that um, inspired discipline and got the job done without complaining about lack of resources. And during the Berlin crisis of 1948, LeMay was tapped to lead the Strategic Air Command, as you mentioned, the most powerful organization, in the US Air Force, responsible for delivering nuclear weapons. And he commanded the Strategic Air Command for nine years, an unprecedented tenure, and with such flair. That he became Mr. Attenbaum personified, and some of you may recall the characterization of him in Dr. Strangelove, um, Stanley Kubrick's uh, black comedy from 1964, and is not painted in a positive light. Uh, LeMay's relentless emphasis on realistic training and in-fight discipline shaped the strategic air command into one of the most effective and respected military units in the world. Today, this longest-serving four-star general in U.S. Air Force history is remembered as a great combat commander during World War II and an unparalleled leader of the strategic air command, but a merely competent Air Force vice chief of staff and then chief of the Air Force from 1961 to 1965 in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. LeMay was not cut for politics and diplomatic finesse. Unlike uh, Billy Mitchell, he did not do well at cocktail parties and receptions. He was not a talkative guy. His outspoken criticism of uh, the Vietnam War strategy led to retirement in 1965. But assessed against the criteria of air power advocacy, integrity and honesty, lifetime achievement, and performance as a member of the Joint Chief of Staff, LeMay was an exceptional air power pioneer. So all these three, Billy Mitchell, Hub Arnold and Curtis LeMay, stand tall in American air power history.
0: All the case studies so far, uh, I think all the case studies in the book are about generals, with the exception of the one that you wrote about Colonel John Warden III. I think all of us who study theory and strategy appreciate you including him. How big an impact has Warden had on the US Air Force and on air power? And where can we actually see this impact?
1: Colonel John Warner has had an enormous impact. And he is, of course, best known as the architect of the concept underlying the Operation Desert Storm air campaign. That is, the Gulf War of 91, the liberation of Kuwait from Iraqi occupation. He had acquired a reputation as a radical thinker by the late 1980s when he published his, um, his book, The Air Campaign. He was an outspoken advocate of using air power as the dominant and decisive element in a military campaign, rather than merely as support to the ground commander's scheme of maneuver. So his Five Rings model and theory of strategic paralysis stood in stark contrast to the then-dominant air battle doctrine exposed by the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force's tactical air command leadership. And Warden developed a nearly messianic um, drive to move airmen beyond conventional thinking. He played a significant role in conceiving a new approach to the conduct of warfare, and he helped restore air campaign planning and theory to the forefront of the US Air Force agenda. He essentially encouraged a new generation of Air Force officers to think about air power, and his key concepts. Three three elements, leadership oriented inside out operations, parallel warfare, and bombing for functional effect, have since become common within the US Air Force and a key subject at military universities throughout the world. So, in short, as a theorist, strategist, wartime planner, intellectual leader, agent of change, and educator, Warden remains the symbol of the Renaissance. In aerospace thinking that took place in the 1990s and continues to this day. He's one of the most influential American air power thinkers since World War II and it wouldn't surprise you that he was very controversial, maybe on par with Billy Mitchell decades earlier.
0: So Warden's impact was in creating or, or re-establishing the idea that air power can be used for strategic effect, that strategic bombing campaigns can work if they're conducted in the right way.
1: Absolutely. And what distinguished him from, let's say, Billy Mitchell and, and that generation, uh, Dohae and Yu and, and, uh, shawr is that he was focused on, uh, on the enemy leadership, not on the industry not on the population. Uh, He wanted to go directly for the leadership to decapitate uh, the command and control uh, and prevent the leadership from communicating with its own people, its armed forces, and and his own command. So a a different approach. But he he reintroduced conventional strategic bombing theory um, and practice through uh, the Gulf War of
0: 1991. And for anyone wanting to know more about John Warden, John Olson has done another excellent podcast with Rusi talking strategy all about John Warden, and uh, I can highly recommend that it's a it's a great listen. So do check that out. So moving on to the final individual contained within your book, Lieutenant General David, well I suppose I should say Lieutenant General David Deptula, being an American officer, originally a student of Warden, having worked for him in the Air Staff, but then developed into an air power theorist in his own rights. Could you please summarize the importance of this particular individual as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, The chapter on Lieutenant General David um, Deptula is written by Dr. Chris Bowie. And um, to some extent, you could say that Deptula is a 21st century recarnation of Billy Mitchell. Uh, Deptula has been tirelessly educating the members of the armed services about the unique characteristics and benefits of aerospace power for more than 30 years. His, his transition from a F-15 fighter pilot to air power champion occurred when he worked for the Secretary of the Air Force in 1990 on global reach, global power, this seminal document that charted the relevance of air power in the post-Cold War era. And Deptula tested his theories during Operation Desert Storm as the chief planner of the Gulf War of 91, becoming the driving force that transformed strategy and targeting into action. His self-designed master attack plan drove the tempo of the war both on the ground and in the air. Uh, it lasted 42 days and the first 38 of those days uh, were with air power only. He went on to influence not just the U.S. Air Force but militaries around the world as well um, uh, in shifting focus from strategies that concentrated on maximum destruction to strategies aimed at achieving desired effects with minimum damage uh, to infrastructure and the civilian population. Uh, In his career, he also transformed intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, what we call ISR, as well as drone operations, from systems and cultures that had remained essentially unchanged since the Cold War, and he made this relevant to the 21st century. According to former Chief of the Air Force, General David Goldfein, the Ptula has become the consciousness of the Air Force, and the Ptula is now the Dean of America's premier think tank on air power, the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Power in Washington, D.C., I would suggest that air and space power today is distinguished by what might be termed the pre Debtullah and the Deptula areas. Practitioners now study his writings and absorb his thinking and analyze his command decisions in the same way that they studied the air power grades of previous eras. Among modern air and space power prophets, John Warden and Dave Deptula stand above and go beyond the rest.
0: Excellent stuff. Thank you very much. I think it's really important here. and I think what you've been highlighting so far and with the, with the trilogy of books that you've published is that air power can be used, can be thought about in different ways. That might be a, a, a relatively simple point, but it's a very important point that I think people often overlook. So to try and bring this to a conclusion, I'm going to focus on your final chapter because what you're trying to do in this chapter, I think, is offer a wake-up call for air power to remain relevant. So, what is your main concern here? In the realm of military
1: theory, strategy, and doctrine, airmen have always been less prolific than their army and naval counterparts. Air Force officers were always doers rather than thinkers. They joined the Air Force to be active and do things rather than sit and read. That Anti intellectual feeling still lingers in the service despite professional educational programs. Very few think outside the box. Few members of the military services have the flexibility of mind to challenge the school solution and established procedures. Fewer still have the tenacity and moral courage to persist in pursuing their ideas in the face of opposition from superiors and peers. But the individuals selected for this book were broad-minded and far-sighted. None was perfect, but all were original thinkers who significantly influenced and shaped the development of air power. So looking ahead, the main challenge for air forces all over the world is to match advances in technology with new and original ideas. They have to systematically encourage officers to think laterally, imaginatively, and afresh. The future of aerospace power requires airmen not only to push the limits in combat, but also to emphasize what is special and vital about air power conceptually. Now, Billy Mitchell tirelessly made the case for the primacy of air power in national defense and laid out the policy steps necessary to turn the promise of air power into reality. His methods were controversial, but he combined knowledge with imagination, an indispensable element in human progress. And he knew how to communicate to a wider audience. It's all about the narrative. Other airmen have since carried the flame and added empirical evidence to appeals and claims, but more is needed. We need a new generation of air power mindedness. And that comes from combining scholarly research with experts
0: in the profession. Thank you, John. That's a really, really important point to end on there. And you've put it so brilliantly and so succinctly. So thank you very much. So it just goes for me to say, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, Thank you for taking the time. I'm sure it's very busy over at NATO HQ at the minute. I really do appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us today about Air Power Pioneers. Thank you indeed. Uh, Thanks for having me. Excellent stuff there from Colonel Professor John Andreas Olsen. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did recording it. Next week, we'll be bringing you another episode on the Falklands War of 1982. We wanted to kick off a new theme of the show, military leadership and command in war, with an examination of the military junta's performance during the conflict. Aspects of this was, of course, covered in an earlier episode that we did last year. But in next week's show, we'll be taking a much closer look at how many of Argentina's failings were caused specifically by poor leadership and command. So do look out for that. See you then.